to RCA Radio, a podcast where we cover the latest news and challenges in regulatory, compliance, and quality assurance facing the life science industries. I'm your host, Brandon Miller. In this episode of RCA Radio, we'll be talking about design controls and the proper way to go about developing your DHF for your medical device products. Today, I'm joined by Jessica Schaffersman. Jessica is a biomedical engineer, project management professional, and a certified usability analyst with 22 years of experience in the medical device product development. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to have you with us. Before we take a dive into all of this, can you quickly explain for the people that may not know what uh, design history files and design controls are? Sure. Design controls are all of the documentation that captures the design of a medical device from requirements to validation. And the design history file is just the conglomeration of all of them into one big file. So it's used to to communicate externally what a device is, how it works, and that we know it's safe and effective. All right. So now that we've got the, the basics out of the way for our listeners, why should companies take design controls seriously? Well, besides the fact that they're required by regulators and regulatory agencies, it is a methodical approach to medical device development that outlines how the product gets created, how it gets tested, how we know that we're creating something that the users want and need, and it connects all the way through. It can make your filings easier to create when your DHF is complete and there's a complete connected story to tell throughout. When you don't have a lot of experience creating design controls, there's a lot of ways to have gaps, to have missteps, and it it makes the story harder to tell to a regulator. As a consulting company, we're seeing more and more requests for help with medical device design controls and DHF development. From your expert perspective, what do you think is driving companies to look for this type of support now? Yeah, I'm not surprised that we've seen an uptick because design controls can be very daunting and confusing, and the regulations really do not give specific instructions about how to create design controls and a complete DHF. And a lot of companies don't have development engineers on staff with this type of experience. There's a lot of reasons a company might not have experienced medical device engineers on staff but suddenly find themselves with a medical device that they want to submit. Things like pharma and biologics companies that are creating combination products. I mean, combination products are great. They're convenient to the users. They give a market advantage to the company. But these companies don't have medical device experienced engineers on staff. The documentation required is dramatically different from what's required for the pharma or biologic component. So that's one reason. Things like software as a medical device. It's a growing trend in the market, and there's no reason to suspect that a software company would have medical device experienced engineers. There's things like small research projects that are done jointly with like scientists and physicians, and suddenly they've developed a viable medical device and they want to take it to market. There's no reason to suspect they would have any design control experience. New regulations like the MDR in Europe have caused companies to reevaluate the documentation they do have. What used to be good enough isn't anymore. They have to beef up their design controls and their DHF needs to be much more complete so that they can submit under MDR. Recently, we've worked with a lot of small startup companies that are using CMOs for manufacturing 
and other consultants for other aspects of the company. And they're getting told from all different sides what they need to do or have or document by all these outside sources. And without coordination, oversight or traceability, that can lead to a lot of errors in a design history file. Yeah. And regulators will find everything you're missing. So it's one of those things that as consultants, we are seeing people need a lot more help in. So what can an expert like yourself do for a company that needs help developing their DHF and design controls? Well, Brandon, we come in at all the phases of development. We've had clients come to us after they've already made their submission and the agency or agencies have come back with questions or concerns about certain aspects of it. And they need somebody with years and years of experience to help them parse out what the regulators are asking for and how to fix those gaps in the DHF that they have that were identified. We have people that come to us from the very beginning and they know they need to have design controls, but they don't know where to start. We'll help them develop SOPs and train their staff to how to follow those SOPs to do their design controls, implement it within their quality management system. And then usually we walk them through jointly their first DHF creation so that they have a good basis for continuing it on throughout the life of the company. We can do simple assessments or sort of external audit where we can review all their documentation and help them find the gaps and issues before the regulators do. But also, we have had clients come to us that just only have one medical device. They're only ever going to have one medical device, and they want somebody to create the design history file for them. And we do it all beginning to end and just hand it off to them. So what would the steps be for, say, a small startup versus a larger company in the development of their DHF? Um, I mean, the, the first step is always let's figure out what we have. So it's best to do an assessment of all of the information, data, documents that have been gathered or design decisions that have been made and figure out where we stand. At what stage of development are we and what is the timeline for where we need to get to? We can do these assessments, develop a plan and move forward. Or sometimes bigger companies will come to us because they have an open CAPA or a customer complaint that requires investigation and potential design changes. And they don't have the staff to handle all of that without sacrificing their ongoing current project. So they would come to us for augmentation of their staff to help fill in those gaps and and continue the CAPA process and the design change process without having to put major projects on hold and use their own internal resources. So when a company is looking for outside help from a subject matter expert, what can they look for experiences that expert has to know that they're finding the right person? Well, experience in creating design history files for years is very beneficial. Understanding of CFR 820, understanding of ISO 13485 and ISO 14971 for the risk is critical because that's what the regulators are looking for. It's almost not as critical that a outside resource has specific knowledge in the field of your device as it is that they understand design controls. They understand how it's all supposed to connect and how it traces all the way through the project because that is applicable across the board. It's applicable to all medical devices. It's a lot more than just a paperwork exercise. And each step has to connect to the next step. 
And once you've learned that and had experience with it, it really helps you avoid the pitfalls and the things that create gaps in a design history file. If you don't have a lot of experience with it, there are a lot of mistakes that are very easy to make. Yeah, I can bet with your 20 plus years of experience helping companies develop these DHFs and refine their design controls, what do you think is the largest pitfalls that you've run into or clients face during this process? Some of the ones I see most commonly are things like user needs that are way too specific or too numerous. Your design inputs are supposed to be derived from your user needs. So in order to have comprehensive requirements, you need to have pretty high level user needs. You don't want them to be super specific and you want them to be from the user's point of view. And that's surefire way to start off the design control process on the wrong foot. Um, And then when you get into developing your requirements, it's pretty easy to word requirements so that they're not testable or ambiguous. You don't want wishy-washy requirements. They should be very specific and unambiguous. People will do verification testing for things they don't have requirements for. That's a no-no. And they'll run tests with acceptance criteria that they don't have any sources for. And that, again, should come from your requirements. I've come into clients who have completed DHFs, but they didn't have any requirements around labeling or packaging. And it's really important to note that labeling and packaging is part of a medical device design. So it should be included in the design history file all the way through. I've seen clients where they don't tie their risks into their design controls. They run the risk management process sort of separately from the design control process. But all your risks and risk controls have to be verified. The easiest way to make sure that happens is to tie them right into your requirements. Again, it's all got to be connected. Manufacturing process controls that don't connect to design output. If there's an output that defines a part or assembly, then you know how to manufacture it. You know what controls to put in place for that manufacturing. There's a lot of times the companies are missing design outputs or they have outputs that don't trace to any requirement. Again, making it all connect is really key. One of the most common things that we see, and this happens a lot, especially in outside the U.S. companies, people will confuse process validation with design validation. They are not the same thing and they rarely overlap. So that can be very confusing because the regulations are really not terribly specific about it. And they use the word validation to define both. So it's not helpful. Lastly, I think a major pitfall is engineers confusing design verification and design validation. Design validation must be with real or representative users in a real or simulated use environment. Verification is testing all your requirements. So they're different. They need to be handled differently. They'll have different acceptance criteria and getting those mixed up can really create messiness in a design history file. Yeah, companies have a lot they need to look out for if they're going to have success with creation of a DHF. So Jessica, if you had to give advice to a company, what's the single most important piece of advice you would give them? Focus on your requirements. Requirements are critical. Spending as much time and energy as possible to get the requirements right and specific and detailed will help you map every design output that you need to create, all of the testing that you need to do, ensure that you can set up your manufacturing process properly, put all the right manufacturing controls in place. All of this comes out of good requirements. 
if your requirements aren't good, the rest of the DHF falls apart. I know we're getting to the end of our time here. Uh, do you have any final thoughts or key takeaways for our listeners? I think it's important to note that when it comes to design controls and design history file creation, one size does not fit all. It is a process that is tailored to the complexity of the device, as well as the size of the company and the size of the market. If you have small, simple class one devices, you still have to have design controls because you have to be prepared to answer the questions from regulators, to respond to customer complaints, to respond to adverse events that get reported to the FDA or the EU. Um, and your design controls need to be set up to do all that. If you have implant and complicated class three devices, those also full DHF, but that's a much bigger, larger scale DHF, right? There'll be more documents. It'll be more complicated. So the process is scaled and it doesn't need to be hard. So when you scale the DHF process appropriately to the complexity of your device and the size of your company, your DHFs are easier to manage. They're within your scope of everyday work, which is really what they should be because you have to maintain a DHF throughout the life of a product. So when you have set up the design control process on a scale you can manage, it's a lot easier to maintain, keep up to date, keep current, and really have rock solid DHF and be prepared for any audit or submission or anything like that. And if you don't wait until the regulators identify your gaps, you identify them up front, you close them upon identification, you wrap it into your entire design process, your device development can be more efficient. You end up not doing testing that you don't need to do, which can be very expensive. And you can really streamline the whole medical device development process when you follow design control methodology. Thank you for explaining this all to me. I know that design controls and DHFs can be confusing for a lot of people. So uh, you cleared up a lot of good information for us and the listeners. And I want to thank our listeners as well for tuning into this episode of RCA Radio. Be sure to subscribe to be the first to know when we upload the next episode of RCA Radio. Thanks again and have a great day.